Amen. Well, this morning, as we get into God's Word, you know, I, I'm always mindful that uh, somebody needs this message, including myself, because usually that message is preached to the preacher before it goes out to anybody else. Um, and so, uh, by God's grace, just open your heart and your mind to hear the Word of God to you today. There are three basic steps in the process that has been used in the process of becoming a disciple, a process of growing as a disciple, um, and learning to have a relationship with God. And these three basic steps are so very important, and they're kind of illustrated in the story that's very familiar to most of us of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And in that story, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who is their brother, they become good friends of Jesus. And isn't it wild to think that Jesus would have good friends, people that are his buddies? But Mary and Martha and Lazarus seem to be that way with Jesus. And I always think that's cool to identify. But early on in their relationship, as their disciples were coming through their village and they were getting to know each other, they stopped off at Mary and Martha and at Martha's home. And Martha invited them to come in for a meal. Now think about that. It's Jesus and the whole troop of disciples. I just, last Sunday night, I, bar I, I sauced and seasoned and barbecued 38 pieces of chicken. That's what it takes to feed my family. And there were three members of the family missing. You know, that's what's wild about it. And so it takes a fair amount of work to pull off a meal with 12 disciples and Jesus and, and others that were there. So the group was pretty big. And so Martha's getting on with this thing. Because she feels like that's what I need to do if I'm inviting Jesus into our midst. She's getting on with it. But Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, her sister. Her sister that should have been by her side sat at the feet of Jesus, listening. And so Martha's preparing this meal. She's rushing. But Mary's sitting and listening. And when Martha complains that Mary wasn't helping, and she complained to Jesus about it, Jesus ends up praising Mary for sitting at his feet and listening. And he says that Mary has chosen what is better. Wow. You know, oftentimes we tend to criticize Martha and say, well, you know, Martha's just a doer, you know, and, and we, we, we kind of criticize her hard work. She was getting ahead of Jesus. And we praise Mary and we praise her for sitting there. But I think that is a little unjust, isn't it? In that situation, yes, Mary chose what was better. But Jesus' point here is, is a little broader and a little more pointed than what we see sometimes. And you might want to write this down. There is a time. There is a time for sitting. Okay? And there is a time for learning. But then there also is a time for walking and for working and for standing. See, th there's a sequence involved here. You, we sit at Jesus' feet, and we've got to sit at his feet, and that's always got to come before we serve Jesus. Jesus invited his disciples to come and be with him before he ever sent them out to do his work. He said, come sit with me, be with me, know me. So we should not work until we've learned. We don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse. See, many new Christians, they reverse this sequence, and many of them want to walk first, 
before they've ever sat or crawled or learned. And so they begin right away to looking for something to do. And, they, and you hear people say it all the time. Don't talk to me about doctrine. I don't really want to. And don't talk to me about reading my Bible. Come on. It feels a little too much like school. And, and I don't really want to be taught theology. Just let me live my Christian life. Just let me live my... As if you live it by instinct. How many of you think your instincts are really godly? And right. See, I'm sorry, but I don't think mine are. And, and I don't think most people's are. See, we, we can't just live our Christian life by feel or instinct. No. What we do, what you do, that's determined by what we believe. What we believe. And we all come to the Lord raw. And we all come to the Lord in process. And we all walk with the Lord and sit with the Lord in process. And we've got to progress. We've got to grow. We've got to learn. We've got to change. Right? So it's very important that, to know that correct doing and correct living, it's determined by what? By growing in maturity and having correct beliefs and correct doctrine and correct theology. So before we attempt to live the Christian life, We've got to sit with Jesus. We've got to know what his will is. We've got to know what righteousness really means. We've got to get strong and strengthened and empowered so that we can walk forward. And Jesus taught that to Mary and Martha that day. You know, the Apostle Paul also understood this as well, and it's how he wrote most of his letters to the churches. I don't know if you realize this, but most of his letters that he wrote to churches, they were structured a certain way. For instance, in Ephesians, um, the action word that you find in chapters 1 through 3 is what? It's sit. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. He tells you in chapter 1 all the good things that you've been blessed with now that you're in Christ. He tells you now what is possible for you. He tells you through these next two chapters through three, chapters one through three, how to live and what to believe. And as you sit there, he tells you those things. And he shows you your royal position. He shows you your identity. He shows you who you are, what you have, and what you are to believe. He shows you those things in those first three chapters. But after you sit for a while, you've got to get up and do something, right? It's time to get up, and it's time to walk. And it's time to do the will of the Lord. It's time to join him. So a Christian's walk does not begin with walking. It begins with sitting. But it certainly leads to walking. Just like a baby that's born. Has to sit first, then crawl, and then walk. And some walk a lot quicker than others. And that's okay. But eventually everybody's going to walk. If you're healthy. So we have a slide here. It says, if, if the first three chapters of Ephesians are about sitting, then the next chapters, four through six, are about walking. And it's how to live out your faith. It's how to walk the Christian life. But toward the end of chapter six, though, there's one more word, and the actual word changes. And that actual word changes to stand. It changes from walking to standing. Standing your ground on solid spiritual ground. Enduring to the end. Be no other confidence 
to stand in the truth. So discipleship, and I think we have that up on the board, right? Go back to it. Do we not have it? There we go. Sit, walk, stand. That's the process. That's the process you're under. Sit, walk, stand. And do it in order. But this morning we want to consider the, one of the first steps of walking. Because I know that most of us have probably sat quite a bit in church. And we sat quite a bit before the Lord. And so here is one of the first steps of walking that we are to take. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn it to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's read verses 1 through 3. Paul wrote this, by the way, to the church while he was in prison and incarcerated uh, for the Lord. Man, you'd think, you know, you'd be just trying to survive if you were incarcerated. But now you're, you're taking pains to shepherd and guide and lead people. Uh, so he really had an understanding of what it was about to sit, walk, and stand. And this is what he writes in chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord then, because I'm here, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Man, they weren't imprisoned. They weren't having to pay that kind of price. And here's a man saying, look, if you can do this, and you can live the life God's called you to in a worthy way, then do it. Do it. Because you know why you can do it, because of chapters 1 through 3. That's why you can do it. And then he goes on. Be completely humble. Be completely gentle. Be completely patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And that peace is about wholeness and about health. Keep growing, keep maturing, keep that unity. And so Paul said, this is the first step in walking. These are some of the first steps you are to take. But I'm here to tell you something. Before we get into what we're going to focus, we're just going to focus on one, one part of the step today and how to accomplish that. But before we do, we need to kind of talk a little bit about what the realities are as we gather for worship and why this was so important to the church back then and why it's important now. You know, many of our brothers and sisters who say they believe in Jesus, they don't come to church. They forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And they really don't see it as a real problem. Now, I'm not getting on them. I'm just stating the truth. It's the reality. And you know what the almost the single most important reason they give? They say, and this may not be your reason. It may not be everybody's reason. But 37% of the people who don't attend church say this. I practice my faith in other ways. I practice it in other ways. I don't need the church. I don't need to go to an organized gathering of the body. I practice it in other ways. Wow. Yet there are other reasons, too, that some don't attend, and it's because they've been deeply hurt. They've been deeply offended by people or leadership in the church, right? And so we don't come. We don't come. Others, they say, well, I haven't found a church I like. And, you know, that's important, you know. Is it? I mean, it's kind of like, well, I haven't found a family I like yet. Well, yeah, you, you need to find a spouse you like before you ever marry them and commit to them, right? So it, that, there's some importance in that. You may want to find a place you like. Or they say, I don't come because I don't like the music. Or, sorry, Jason. I don't like the music. 
and therefore I don't come. Or I don't like the sermon. There you go. You know, those pastors, man, you know, Pastor Kelly, he can get long, and he's, he's a little fiery sometimes, or, or I'm just bored, good grief. Right? So they don't like it, they don't come because of that. At the same time, modern-day believers can have a tendency, too, to want to just keep bouncing. So we bounce from church to church because we're in a consumer mentality and a consumer culture, the United States. And so we go from church to church, ministry to ministry, because we're looking to experience the latest and greatest teaching or the latest and greatest movement of God. I'm telling you, God is here. All it takes is a step of obedience and faith, and your whole life can change. Anywhere, any place. That's what it's about. Just because you get entertained... Just because you get emotionally fired up and then it's gone the next day or two or whatever, that's not what it's about. It's about saying yes to Jesus and to his word. When he speaks it to your heart and to your mind, that's what makes the difference. And that changes everything. So seek the Lord. Don't seek those things. Right? Well, some do that, and, and they do that instead of committing to building up and serving a local body to the glory of God. That's not us. That's not most of us here. We're committed. We're committed to being together. We're committed to ministering and serving. We're committed to the long haul, which is what we're going to be called to today. But I'm here to tell you one other thing, though. See, this is not just in the congregation alone. It's everywhere. It's in the leadership of the church, too. In our tribe or our denomination of the body of Christ, we have currently 500 churches without pastors. Can you believe that? We currently, nationwide, in our movement alone, we have 500 churches without pastors, without shepherds. No one to lead them. No one to lead them. Either the Spirit of God is not calling people to shepherd and lead his church, or believers are not heeding his call to be equipped and shoulder the mantle and burden of leadership, of being shepherds. Which do you think it is? Do you think the Spirit isn't calling? Do you think the Lord is not moving? It might be that certain churches need to be done, and they need to start again in another place with others or band together in new ways, but I think many times it's that people say, well, shoot, I've never really prayed and asked if God's called me to lead the church or lead that ministry or be that shepherd or take that role in the church. I've never really asked the Lord that. And so it's not happening. See, it's pretty apparent that we are struggling overall in the greater church in this one aspect, in bearing with one another anyway. That leads to unity and being united, bearing with one another in love. And so this morning, we want to take a look at this one aspect of our walk with Christ. What does it mean to bear with one another in love? Think about that. What do you think about, and what do you think it means? Well, here's the first thing it means. You choose to be responsible to one another. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been called to be with him, you're sitting with him, He's loving you. You're fellowshipping with his love. 
He fills you with your, his Holy Spirit and gives you spiritual gifts and spiritual power. He's going to ask you eventually at one point, walk with me. Do my work with me. And he's going to say, I need you because I'm not going to force you. I need you to choose to be responsible to one another. You need to be, you have to take responsibility for your calling. And you've got to choose it. He won't force you. He won't make you. That's not his way. He's a shepherd. You know, the demons do that. They're the ones who dominate you and, and beat you up and accuse you. God does not do that to you or me. And so he's not going to force us. And so this biblical word for bearing says, you and I have the authority and the duty to take care of something or someone. You and I have the authority and the duty to take care of something, take care of something, or someone. Okay? You're responsible to do to something. You're responsible to something. Or you're responsible to someone. And to be responsible, <coughs> excuse me, you know right away, that means I quit passing the buck. I quit avoiding it. I quit dodging it. I quit trying to get out of doing it. And I quit, I quit trying to get out of caring for someone or doing something I know I'm called to do. To be responsible. How many firstborns out there? All the firstborns, yeah, you by nature know how to be responsible. I'm sorry. How many lastborns? Okay, I'm speaking to you. <laughs> God bless you. How many middle children? We don't want to forget the middle children. They're awesome. They don't know what they're doing, though. Sometimes they're responsible, sometimes they're not responsible. They don't know what to do. All right. We are responsible. But, but, but see, right away, you can feel the burden starting to come, right? You can feel the weight coming on you. I'm here to take some of that weight off. Christian psychologist, Dr. Henry Cloud, some of us are familiar with him. He's, he's done some good, great books on the family and on marriage and other things. And he explains that there's a difference between being responsible for someone and being responsible to someone. See, for is different than to. He says, when it comes to helping others, I get a lot of questions about the difference between being responsible for someone and being responsible to someone. And so we have on the board here the law of responsibility, and this is what it says, and you can read it up there, or take a shot from it if you want. The, the law of responsibility says that you're responsible for yourself and to others. See the difference? Start to get it. It's realizing the boundaries of what you are to worry about and how you are to worry about it. There is nothing wrong with helping another person. It's one of the foundations of relationships. But the lines must always be clear as to whether you are helping them to do what they should be doing and thus empowering them, or if you are doing for them what they should be doing for themselves. It's a struggle. It's hard for us as, well, it's not so much hard for us as fathers because we don't want to do anything for our kids anyhow. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it like that. Moms, it struggles for them because they want, to, they want to care for their kids. And so they get caught up in 
blurring those lines and, and start doing things for them rather than being responsible to them. It's to take that load off your mind. You don't have to feel guilty about that. But men, we need to be still be responsible to people. It says this, for example, Dr. Cloud gives this example. Stephanie is losing a lot of work time helping Diane. She was always covering for it, it seems, when Diane was overstressed and overloaded. Diane had a lot of personal issues that were taking more of her work time. And as that was happening, she was coming in later, not getting projects done on time, etc. Stephanie was a big-hearted person and was glad to help her out, at least at the beginning. Okay. Soon, however, it became clear that the reason Diane was overstressed and overworked was because a because, not because a typhoon had hit her life, but because she was not managing her life well. See, she wasn't taking responsibility for it. She was not dealing with her problems. She was not managing her overload. As a result, Diane's problems were becoming Stephanie's problems. Have you been there? She was slowly taking responsibility. That means Stephanie was slowly taking responsibility for Diane. She had crossed the line. Her helping was not helping. She was dealing with things Diane should have been dealing with, and in the process, end up doing Diane's life for her. See, that starts to happen. See, a good friend wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do Diane's life for her, but be responsible to her and tell her that she was out of control and that she needed something, she needed to do something about her personal life to get things back in order. This, of course, is best received when you come from a place of love and empathy, which is true, and we know that. Stephanie would be a better friend by telling Diane the truth, that she was worried about how she was doing and to get some help for whatever was at the root of all of her issues. But to continue to cover for her was not helping her. You see? So the essence of being responsible to someone is to, is to not do for them what only they can do, and to, but to, and to love them, though, by providing the help that would help them do it for themselves. And that's what you want to do. You want to help to empower people. So to be responsible to people, help them to do what they can do, and then you do what you can to help that process. Your job is to encourage. My job is to encourage, to confront, to empower, sometimes even to give resources, coaching, support, other things that help them fulfill their responsibilities without doing it for them. See, that's the line. Are we responsible for people or to people? In fact, in the Greek word that's used for bearing in our, our, our scripture today, it means to support and picking up the burden and helping another person carry their burden. It's not in picking up their burden and carrying it for them. In fact, the Bible, when it says that in Galatians 6.2, it says carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's talking about large things. You help them carry it. You don't carry it for them. See, that's to dehumanize them. That's to take away their value, their responsibility. It's to make them feel like they're nothing. Supposed to, we're supposed to empower one another rather than do it for one another. Amen? 
Amen. So that's what it means to bear, my gosh, to take and to be, res- to, to be responsible to other people in love. Who are you responsible to? Do you see that we're all responsible in the family of God to build up the family in love? We are. We're all responsible to not just sit, but to actually walk and build up that body and do things. We're responsible. Isn't that good? That's so good. But there's more, okay? And we're responsible to take up that matter. I I don't want to go on this too long, but look at When the Lord called me to be a pastor, I'm responsible to that call. And that means I'm responsible to you. To you. I'm not responsible for you. I'm responsible to you. But I've got to accept that by faith and walk in it. Some of us here are called to things that we're not accepting. (coughs) Maybe to, to, to teach in children's ministry. Maybe it's to lead a small group and to get equipping to do that. And so we'll say, well, I'm just not equipped or, well, I just don't have time. You're responsible to it. God is calling you. But you're not accepting that call and you're saying no. You're not bearing with one another in love. We're to bear with one another in love. See, that's how you walk in the church. And that's how you really grow as a Christian. Once you start bearing, and bearing your part of the load that God has called you to. So I want to encourage you in that. What are you responsible to? Who are you responsible to? And what are you responsible to take care of? Come on. Think about it and ask the Lord, because it's a good thing. It'll bless you, and it'll bless others as you say yes to it. Here's the second thing. We're to be tolerant. To bear bear with one another in love is to be tolerant of others. Looking back at our passage, Paul gives us three fruits of the Spirit, and and, and he tells us that in verse 2, and it helps us to accomplish this responsibility that we have in relation to others, right? And so he writes, be completely humble, gentle, and patient as you bear with one another in love. And so he targets these three attitudes and traits, and these are necessary for living a worthy life and for bearing with one another in love. And so here's the first one, be completely humble. Be completely humble. In the Greek culture, this expression was applied to the lowest class of society, the outcast, the slave. But but really what it's about in the New Testament has more of a positive. It stands for a person's proper estimate of himself in relationship to God or others. That means you know your lane. And you know that your lane is not everybody else's lane. You need people in other lanes in your life. You need people with other giftings in your life. You can't do it all. You can't do all the work of ministry. You can't do all the work you need to grow in Christ. You need to depend on other people. And you realize that. That's an awesome place to be, to be humble. I love it. It it, it just, to me, humility uh, expresses what it looks like for a football team to run a play together. They're all submitting and they're all humble to one another to play their roles and to do their job. And so because of it, success is had. Are we humble enough to do that? The humble person sees other people as with great value because they're loved of God. 
and they find meaning and satisfaction in serving them because they know those folks are going to serve them back. And they're in it together. So people are to be served, they're to be helped, they're to be cared for, mentored, shepherded, not dominated, not controlled, not demeaned, not exploited. Completely humble people completely value and serve other people and live in their ways. And we're to be completely humble. We need each other. But also, we're to be completely gentle. That word also means considerateness. Being considerate of other people. Man, it's not being weak. Being, being gentle is not weakness. See, being gentle is actually being meek, which is to find strength under control. Is you have control. You're, you're wise enough to be in control. A gentle person has a mild and soothing quality about them. Rather than generating strife, a gentle person will tend to generate peace and har harmony in the environment around them. That's what we want. Gentle, gentle, approachable, considerate. How considerate are we of others? How approachable are we to others? So humble, gentle, be complete in those things. Man, that's a pretty tall order. But then there's a, this, this word we all love and we all hate. Be completely patient. And this Greek word for patience is really the capacity for self-control that involves an individual, that enables an individual to keep loving and forgiving despite being provoked. Keep, how are you in being provoked? Okay. How are you when you're provoked? When we were first married, Jody said, man, you're easy to start a fight with. That's what she would say. Because I was a young guy, full of strength and energy and everything else. And certain things would provoke me. And because I'm kind of an eight on that Enneagram thing that talks up people, I like justice, I, I like truth, I want things to be clear, I want to challenge things that aren't clear and aren't right, that would tend to put me into places where I was easily provoked. I wasn't patient. And I had to learn patience through the things that I endured. What about you? You've got to be patient. We have to be patient. And God will work on those things. God will give us people to make us patient. How many of you have a person in your life that helps you be growing patient? Raise your hand. Yeah. You don't have to name who that person is. Um, but we all have people like that. They're good for us. Tell yourself that person is good for you. They show you the extent of your maturity and patience. And they show you where it ends. Amen? So you can rightly judge how patient you truly are. Thank you, thank you for the, those people, Lord. I want to be patient. Because love is patient. Isn't it? Love sees the big picture. Love endures. Be patient. And sometimes we're not patient in that in the church. We want to be with people that are just like us right where we're at. And we don't want to be patient with anybody else that isn't. But we are to be an expression of Christ's body. We are a place where all the garbage of the world falls away. There should not be, we shouldn't have to deal with racism in the church. We shouldn't have to deal with arrogance, you know, where people are trying to control other people. 
we shouldn't have to deal with those kinds of things like that. We shouldn't have to deal with uh, the demographic issues between those who make a lot and those that are poor. We are one church. Whether we're slaves or we're free, sometimes in the modern early or in the early church, there were slaves that were elders over people that were masters in, in real life and in the culture. Isn't that strange? But in the church, that didn't occur, and it started breaking down all those nutty ways of relating to one another, because we're to be completely, excuse me, completely humble, completely gentle, and completely. And then finally, it says bearing with, finally this trait of bearing with could also be defined as putting up with others until the provocation is passed. Bearing, right? Putting up with it. I love good bearings. I love good bearings. I first ran into good bearings on the skateboards in California. You know, they're really good bearings, man. Because you could roll fast and sharp and they were smooth, and then I ran into them on my BMX bike, and then I ran into them in other places. Bearings are awesome. It's, it's where a lot of friction and speed happens, but it works smoothly together, and it endures together because all the rough edges have been knocked off on those bearings, and they're smooth, and they work well together, and I love bearings. I want to bear with others in I want to be a person who can work with others, don't you? Well, that's what we need in the church. And as that happens, in our relationships, our marriages endure. As it happens in our relationships, our friendships endure. Because don't you know that if you're going to stay in long-term relationships, you're going to have to forgive over and over again? Right? If you're going to stay in long-term relationships, you're going to have to be patient through growth and change and ups and downs. And the same is true in a church. If you're going to stay there and endure and fulfill the mission that you've been called to and bear with one another, you're going to have to be completely humble, completely gentle, and completely patient. Those are important in maintaining the unity of the church and God's people so we stay a long time. See, some of us know that. And because we've stayed a long time, Guess what? People who kind of chided us in one way or the other have now become dear to us and a blessing. Isn't that true? I'm not looking at anybody in particular like you were, oh man, you were cool when I first met you. No, I'm not doing that. And you might think the same for me. But things become better as we endure and as we bear. So are these attitudes of love uh, are, are they the things that we exhibit in our relationship with one another as we walk out our faith, as we walk as sons and daughters of God in this family? This is how we are to live with each other, and this is how our true identity in Christ is made real and shown to the world. As we live, in each, live with each other in these ways, we learn what love is, and we express the love of Jesus and the love he has for each of us. We express it to one another, and that love becomes so as we conclude this morning, I want to bring us back to uh, Paul's point at the beginning. Chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians, we see that Christ has reconciled sinful man to a holy God. When, you, when Jesus came and he died on the cross for us, 
He made it possible for us to accept God's forgiveness and to be pardoned of our sins, to be washed clean, and to be, then to be made new as people through the infilling of his Holy Spirit. And we became new creations. We became sons and daughters of God. That's what happened. And Paul told us those things happened in chapters 1 through 3. And so we see that. Now that that ultimate wall of division is broken down between us and God, it doesn't make sense for there to be divisions between us that are much smaller and for much smaller things to keep you and me apart. We have been reconciled to God through Christ, and that means we are also reconciled to one another in Christ. Do you realize that? We are. The wall of hostility has been broken down between us and God, and so that wall of hostility must necessarily be broken down between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, black and white, young and old. That wall needs to be down in God's family. So walking in a life worthy of our calling means that our lives reflect our salvation by loving one another. In humility, we think more highly of others than we do ourselves. In gentleness, we're soft and tender to each other and considerate, even if wrath or anger is the more appropriate response or the thing we want to do. We show consideration. In patience, we are ready to wait for one another. Are you willing to wait? Are you willing to be slow to anger? Are you willing to take the time to see other people grow and grow up? We bear with one another by remembering that we too are sinners saved by grace alone. Amen? Raise your hand if you're a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, we remember that. Who thinks they're the greatest sinner out there? Raise your hand. I think I am. I think I was. I think some of you think. Yeah, Paul thought that. I'm the greatest sinner. So Paul, therefore, could do what? He could show grace to anyone. I can too. I hope you can too. We bear with one another by remembering that we too are sinners saved by grace alone, recognizing that our own sins and weaknesses sometimes are a drag to others as well. Realize that. When you're threatened, when you're tempted to be impatient with somebody else, just realize that you drag them down sometimes and they're, they're tempted to be impatient with you. That's a good thing to remember. So we must maintain this unity and peace by overlooking small offenses. We've got to become not so sensitive about offenses. But at the same time, we need to lovingly confront serious offenses. We do. And speak the truth in love. So that we can get through those problems. And we need to work hard to repair and maintain broken relationships. Because God loves unity. He doesn't, he doesn't really want to get into a debate over who is right and who is wrong. He wants you to do what you're responsible to do. Do you see? To bear one another in love. So this is the call of the gospel, and it's the call of the church. This is the walk that we're called to walk. And the church needs to remember this now more and more as we bring a gospel to a world that's ravished by this division and disunity. We need to be about uniting each other and uniting people who are lost in the world to the church, to God. That's what we need to be about. So I want you to stand with me and close in prayer this morning. I hope you're renewed to bear with one another.